0: Antitrust by itself doesn't get to the root of the problem that these giant corporations present. And I think also it doesn't alone point us in the direction of a more equitable, democratic, and sustainable economy.
1: Hello and welcome to Tech Won't Save Us. I'm your host, Paris Marks, and this week my guests are Matthew Lawrence and Thomas Hanna. Matthew Lawrence is the founder and director of Commonwealth a uk-based think tank designing models for ownership change he's also the co-author of Planet on Fire: a manifesto for the Age of Environmental Breakdown which will be released by verso in April 2021 and you can find the information on how to pre-order it in the show notes Thomas hanna is the research director at the Next system project and his work specializes in alternative models of ownership he's also the author of our Commonwealth. The Return of Public Ownership in the United States. Together, they are the co-authors, with Nils Peters, of a new report called A Common Platform, Reimagining Data and Platforms. It not only goes through the existing proposals to transform the platforms that we are so dependent on today to ensure that they better serve the public good, instead of just serving the bottom lines of major corporations and the power of the executives and CEOs of these companies. But also lays out a number of policy options that could be pursued in order to build a new platform ecosystem for platforms and technologies that are designed first and foremost for the public good instead of having to worry about or consider the incentives of a private corporation. It's a really refreshing report. And in our conversation, we take the debate around platforms and what to do with them beyond antitrust. So we're not just worried about creating more competitive markets for platforms or ensuring that there's more competition, but actually changing the larger incentives that exist around them to ensure that we no longer have platforms that are putting profits first and foremost. So I think you're really going to like this conversation. But quickly, before we get into it, I also want to give you a quick update on the podcast since this is the last episode of the year. So far, I've released 42 episodes. The podcast has had listeners in 115 countries. Now, most episodes only get listeners in 60 to 70 countries, but I still think that's pretty good and still shows how international the podcast has become. It also has more than 100 five star reviews on Apple Podcasts in at least 19 countries. And it regularly charts in the Apple Podcast technology charts in countries around the world. So I think that's pretty impressive and pretty good for a podcast that's not even a year old. And obviously, none of this would be possible if it wasn't for the amazing guests that have come on the show. And to the listeners who have responded so positively to the show, who share it, and who reach out to me to let me know the aspects of the show that they like and enjoy, and things that they'd like to see more of. And so I really appreciate that. And I'm getting a bit more of that now that we have the Discord server, where I can chat with people who are supporting the show on Patreon. And obviously, as we look forward to 2021, I'm excited to continue having these critical conversations and to building on the success that the podcast has experienced this year as well. As the year comes to an end, I would ask that if you are really enjoying the show and you want to ensure I can keep doing this work and keep making all of the podcast episodes free, which is my plan because I want as many people as possible to be listening to these conversations and getting these critical insights on technology that are not as easy to find as the perspectives that are uncritical and laud these companies and these surveillance technologies and all these things that we have a big issue with. So if you haven't considered it yet, you can join supporters like Scott Sauce, Hugh from Melbourne and Alte, and 68 other patrons by going to patreon.com slash tech not save us and becoming a supporter. Thanks so much and enjoy my conversation with Matthew Lawrence and Thomas Hanna. Matthew Lawrence, welcome to Tech Won't Save Us. Thanks very much for having me. And Thomas Hanna, welcome to you as well.
0: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm super excited to talk to both of you because you have a really interesting new report out called a common platform that kind of digs into the proposals that already exist for changing and kind of reorienting the platforms to make them better serve the public good, but also to imagine a better way to organize the platform economy that would serve the people who we want it to serve instead of serving the bottom lines of massive corporations, right? And so I want to start by asking, you know, in the past five years, we've obviously seen views about these platforms and the major tech companies significantly shift, right? To the degree that the US government has now sued Facebook and Google for their monopolistic practices and the EU has levied huge fines against many of these tech companies, right? So before we get to your broader vision, what are the main problems that you see with these platforms and these major tech companies with the way that they are currently composed?
0: Well, I guess first and foremost are the competition issues. And I think these are the ones that are primarily being focused on by the antitrust enforcers and enforcement that you, you just mentioned. And, and these include, you know, acquiring smaller companies to prevent competition, stockpiling intellectual property, willfully violating laws and regulations to gain footholds in new markets, squeezing suppliers and contractors, and just generally, I think, using their political influence and power to reduce regulations. On themselves and, uh, and increase barriers for competition for others. But that's really just the tip of the iceberg. For me, one of the biggest problems with the big tech companies and the platform companies is that of surveillance capitalism, which, which essentially describes, I think, a, a secretive and non-consensual process of turning all of our life, all of our human life into data that can be bought and sold and used in various ways. And I think beyond this, surveillance capitalism is increasingly about using that data to modify people's behavior in a way that really boosts the power and the profits of some of these large companies. There's also the, the issue of precarious work, which, which means jobs that are poorly paid, you know, lack social benefits and workplace protections, including access to labor unions, and that are just generally unstable or insecure. And these arrangements are really central to the business model of many of these big platform corporations. I mean, think, for instance, Uber and Lyft and what these companies pulled off in California recently. I mean, when you take a step back, it's actually really, really stunning. You know, these companies use their bottomless pits of VC funding to willfully undercut labor and other regulations in California and around the world to gain a really dominant position in the market. Then when they were faced with a new law that would require them to classify their workers appropriately, that's like, that's AB5. They threatened a capital strike, they fought the law in the courts, and then ultimately they spent absolutely massive sums of money on a really deceptive and self-serving ballot referendum that would exempt themselves from the law. And during that referendum, they paid off civil society actors to support them. They pushed pro-22 Prop propaganda through their apps uh, to users, and it really paid off. I mean, the companies won, their market value soared after the vote, and now they're looking to replicate that trick in states across the U.S., I mean, there's an, a number of other ones, you know, algorithmic bias, financialization, misinformation and manipulation, social control, you know, and so on. Matt, would you like to jump in on any of those other ones or any thoughts?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's this there's that line by Lenin about back in whenever he was writing about how in the future, all of society will become a factory. And he'll, he's obviously sort of, I imagine, referring to sort of like you know, Fordism slash communist sort of, you know, industrialization. But in some ways, you know, that has come true in that all of society is increasingly being turned into a digital factory. In that our relationships, our infrastructure, our environments, our attention is being increasingly, pervasively, sort of digitized, enclosed, corralled, and transformed into forms of value. And I think that basic dynamic of expansion and enclosure is what gives the major platforms their sort of vast monopolistic power, which then leads to all the problems that you know Thomas has attested to in terms of inequality in terms of sort of algorithmic bias in terms of, sort of the, the scale of concentration of power in society and so i think you know a lot of this stems from that basic point that while they seem shiny new in, in many ways they reflect a sort of very old problem in capitalism namely the concentration of monopoly power frontier activity sort of increasingly dominating the economy and on that sort of point about sort of precarious work I think it's important to, in some ways, recognise that part of the problems that emerge from the platform are not necessarily sort of linked to sort of the technologies as such. Is that platforms and sort of people like Senator Paul and others in the US have made the argument: platforms are not just sort of digital innovators in terms of the company; they're also as much of innovators in legal and regulatory sort of action and arbitrage, and so sort of finding the loopholes, working you know very hard, sort of bust open sort of regulatory sort of gaps you know, whether that's employment protections, labor rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think, you know, it's, it's important to, as, as Thomas has mentioned, many of these problems are sort of not just sort of side effects of Jeff Bezos being evil or anything like that. It's like linked to the structural dynamic of enclosure expansion, sort of, you know, that the platform as organized under sort of for-profit, you know, shareholder platform as a model of you know, platform delivery It's kind of hardwired, it's baked into the infrastructure of the platform.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And I wanted to ask you specifically, Matt, because in the report, you talked a bit about how these platforms and these tech companies didn't just arise out of nowhere in the UK. And I think this is true of many other countries, right? In that, you know, in the report, you wrote that the UK, along with France, it has the most platforms in Europe and that the expansion of VC funding required a particular regulatory environment that was favorable for these companies to flourish so can you describe a bit what that regulatory environment looks like and what the implications of it are
2: absolutely so there's two things here the first which you sort of alluded to is really important which is that those sort of platforms and sort of you know technological development under capitalism sort of like to give off an air of in the inevitability of like there's only sort of one you know one path towards the development of the platform one path towards technological sort of you know adaptation and use. Of course, you know, it's deeply fluid, you know, technologies are creole, they're hybrid, they can be sort of reshaped, reused, you know, transformed for social purposes, et cetera, et cetera. And so then it goes, well, okay, the second point is, then, well, well, why is it that we've developed platforms that seem to be squeezing labor, which seem to be accelerating inequality rather than distributing voice, you know, sort of some of those utopian sort of imaginaries about sort of what um, digital connection could have brought us if you look back to the early days of uh, digital technologies. I think there, it's important to, as you say that you know this is not just like random that it's developed like this and has sort of the power imbalances that it generates. It reflects political choices, you know, social institutions and their design. So in the UK, you know, I think it's important as you mentioned sort of the role of VC, venture capital, in the rise of platforms, because of course, you know, most platforms are sort of deeply strange sort of capitalist firms in the sense that most of them don't really make profit. Most of them then, you know, basically burn through a t- ton of VC profit, crash and burn, but then one or two burn through enough, you know, your Amazons, your Googles, et cetera, they burn through a lot at the beginning, and they use that to then sort of get to the scale and the network effects of, sort of many users that enable them to sort of become like real sort of cash-generating machines for, for their investors. And so the UK has sort of particularly developed sort of deep pool of venture capital, and there's you know, a lot of sort of policy questions there around financialization, around sort of treatment of capital markets in the UK relative to Europe, We've also got sort of, you know, sort of employment sort of categorisation, uh, which is neither employee nor sort of self-employed, and it's kind of in between, and that allows sort of some of this regulatory arbitrage. is actually a sort of case at the moment it's Supreme Court involving Uber and some of the Uber drivers around sort of the employment status, but sort of the employment relationship uh, has allowed for so on of this some of the the ways we treat data, and of course, you know, with the UK. Having left the EU and about to leave the sort of transition period, there's going to be lots of questions around how we sort of regulate and govern collection and use of data. So there's a whole sort of set of sort of questions, you know, tax treatment, etc., 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 that have shaped the development of platforms and shaped why it is the sort of particular you know, platforms thrive and their consequences for you know, the labour market inequality, a whole host of other areas.
1: Thomas, I wanted to ask you as well. You know, one of the aspects of this that I feel allows these platforms to not only grow to such a large degree and to kind of force out traditional competitors in the spaces that they operate, but also to make it difficult to kind of launch some kind of cooperative or more socially oriented alternative is the predatory pricing, right? The way that all of this VC cash allows them to underprice their product for like in the case of Uber now, like over a decade, right? So then it becomes really difficult for taxi companies, but also cooperative alternatives to kind of operate when Uber can offer such a lower price because of how they're being subsidized by these venture capitalists, right? So what is the the deeper effect of what is going on there? And how is this even able to happen? How is a company able to lose money for a decade and it still continue to operate?
0: It's a really good question. And a lot of the discourse over the past several decades in the United States, in the United Kingdom and elsewhere around the world around markets and planning and state intervention has really been very erroneous. It has really come down on the side of of market fundamentalism and has taken this sort of libertarian undertone in in many cases. And upon closer scrutiny, when you look at it more in depth, this libertarian undertone of how markets are the drivers of growth and the drivers of innovation really does not hold up to water. We've done a number of other papers in this series where we've looked at different components um, of the digital economy, things like IP and R&D and so on and so forth. And what you actually see in, in Mariana Mazzucato and others have done a lot of work on this is that you wouldn't have the Silicon Valley, you wouldn't have the VC funding, you wouldn't have this entire big tech system without significant public investment and public support. So even just the basic premises of, of how these markets work and how funding for big tech should work is, is based on sort of quicksand. It's based on erroneous principles uh, in general. But even even leaving this aside, you know, keep, even on, on the merits of, of VC funding, there's been a lot of criticism and controversy. I mean, as, as you point out, you know, Uber has not turned a profit in, in a decade. I mean, in its IPO, they pretty much stated to their investors that they may never, ever turn a profit. And you know, some of the big investment funds, uh, Softbanks Fund, for instance, has you know taken a huge loss and huge losses recently on a lot of these investments in things like Uber and, and so on. And so that really raises the question as to like, you know, why would VCs want to invest in these platforms? And I think Matt spoke to it quite well in terms of their sort of value and loss proposition. But I think that the bigger point is is that this type of funding, and this type of game that they're playing where they invest massive amounts in these loss making companies and then they you know maybe one or two will be successful and then they try and get outsized returns on that success that's intimately linked to the problems that we see in the platform economy the monopolization of the platform economy because if you have this pressure if you have all of this pressure to essentially gain a foothold and to dominate a market. If the entire sort of payback for your investors is based on you taking a monopoly position at some point and driving down wages and driving down costs, you know, that is a massive incentive to do that and to monopolize. So these things are very much intimately connected to each other and they're not things that can be replicated by alternative models, by cooperatives and, and so on and so forth. First and foremost, you know, VC funds are not likely to get the same return out of a cooperative. Uh, as they are from a large, giant corporation. And second of all, you know these are not the types of funds that cooperatives should want to take. Their business model should not be based on surveillance capitalism. I think cooperative alternatives, platform cooperatives and so on, are rightfully wary of this business model of t- essentially turning all of one's personal data and, and all of society's interactions into, into a commodity that can be bought and sold. So I think rightfully so, Platform cooperatives shouldn't take VC money, and they won't take VC money. But as a result, they're at a significant competitive disadvantage to the loss-making giant corporations that are taking that money and using that money to undercut their competition.
2: Just to sort of follow on, on that and your question, which I think is a really intriguing question, and you know, it's a lot about the sort of nature of you know, contemporary capitalism, uh, is about like how do these like, loss-making firms survive for so long in its relationship to the financial system? And there's an interesting article by Eric Levitz in the New York Magazine the other day on sort of the VC industry. The analogy which I think either Eric drew or sort of certainly others have drawn is that sort of where we are is almost sort of the closest approximate. It's almost like a Brezhnevian sort of moment in sort of Anglo-Saxon capitalism in that you've got like a tight knot of sort of planners, which is what ultimately VC, you know, they're trying to plan the future and sort of like break the sort of, you know, they're not working via competition and market allocation. They're sort of saying, right, Uber, it doesn't matter what its results are, we're going to sort of pour in money until it gets to X. So a tight knot of, you know, very sort of often very elite, very of centralized planners, whether it's BC or other forms of finance, are, you know, working out the future through control of investment, you know, and yet you've got sclerotic sort of, you know, productivity growth, you know, it's not like sort of the platforms are necessarily delivering sort of, you know, surging productivity gains, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it does raise really, you know, you're right to touch on it because it raises really interesting questions around sort of, the nature of planning in an economy, sort of, you know, how we surface that, politicize it, contest it, and sort of, you know, reshape and democratize planning, the planning function, not just in the platform economy, but in the economy as a whole. And I think platforms and their sort of business model actually really sort of surfaces injustices and sort of inefficiencies of the current model.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, obviously governments are now starting to pay attention to the issues that these platforms and these tech companies are presenting, right? And so in the US, as I mentioned, You know, the government is suing Facebook and Google in the UK and other countries. Competition authorities are kind of being beefed up in order to look at these companies and to see what new kind of reforms and rules they're going to bring in. And so, you know, say as part of this Facebook lawsuit that has been put out, one of the proposals is that Facebook would have to divest of Instagram and WhatsApp, right? Essentially to break up this company. And that has been one of the major calls by. This kind of movement that's concerned about monopolies is to break them up, to create a more competitive marketplace with more tech companies competing against one another. But in your report, you kind of lay out how, yes, there are positives to this, but simply breaking up monopolies does not go far enough, right? So why is this antitrust approach not enough to rectify the harms that these platforms are creating?
0: I think these actions are definitely welcome and, and, and way overdue in many cases. I mean, the, the monopolization of the platform economy, you know, Facebook called it a land grab when they, were, uh, when they were acquiring Instagram. It's been increasing for years and has only really been deepened, I think, through the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's been basically no antitrust enforcement in the U.S. against big tech companies in recent years. The Judiciary Committee report that was released at the beginning of October revealed that I think regulators had not blocked a single acquisition out of hundreds that have been made by the dominant platforms over the past decade or so. But as you said, you know, for us, antitrust by itself doesn't get to the root of the problem that these giant corporations present. And I think also it doesn't alone point us in the direction of a more equitable, democratic and sustainable economy, which is what I and Matt and I think others are ultimately trying to see develop here. I think there are three interconnected reasons why antitrust strategies alone are insufficient to deal with the problems posed by big tech. And the first is the nature of modern antitrust enforcement itself, especially in the United States. And specifically over the past several decades, there's been a pretty fundamental reinterpretation of antitrust law by the courts and a corresponding decline in successful antitrust prosecutions. And the broader concept of antitrust that predominated in the first half of the 20th century, you know, the trust busters, you know, when people think about antitrust, they think about this broader conception of antitrust from the early days. But that's really given way over the past half century to a a much more narrow interpretation of antitrust that really focuses on things like prices, consumer welfare, efficiency, and so on. And so a successful antitrust strategy is likely to be contingent on pretty wholesale revision on the grounds in which a company is deemed to be a monopoly or anti-competitive. It's really an uphill battle, I think, in, in my opinion. So we're, while we, we're going to have to see what the outcomes are of these recent antitrust actions that you mentioned against Facebook and Google and the like, I'd be surprised personally if, if any of those actually ended up with the companies being physically broken up in any meaningful way or any you know serious penalties being forced under the current statutes. And already, you see a lot of experts in the legal community expressing pretty significant skepticism about the probability of success for these antitrust strategies. Second, I think, are the political economic considerations. And without additional changes to the structure of the companies themselves or the markets that they operate in or you know the legislation governing antitrust enforcement, it seems pretty inevitable to me that these companies will not only be able to use their power to sort of stymie or delay the antitrust strategies, just like Microsoft did around the turn of the century, but also they're probably just going to reconsolidate relatively quickly in the off chance that they are actually broken up. And there's a lot of evidence of this in the US. I mean, you know, standard oil, when it was broken up at the turn of the century, it can reconsolidate it. I mean, Exxon and Mobil is essentially standard oil. All the small standard oils, the regional monopolies, Gobbled each other up over a period of decades and eventually became Axon and Mobile. And the same thing happened for AT and T. And with AT and T, they became the Baby Bells, and the Baby Bells started buying each other up and eating each other, and then they sort of became AT and T again. Well, AT and T and Verizon. But the Standard Oil one took several decades. That is because of the way antitrust was being interpreted in the first half of the century. The AT and T reconsolidation happened almost within two decades. I mean, very, very quickly. And that, I think, really highlights some of the additional challenges related to implementing antitrust strategies in an era where there's very, very strong ideological and political adherence to neoliberalism and market fundamentalism and so on. And that brings, I think, to the third point, which for me is obviously the most important point, and that's the goals and the aims of antitrust. You know, to date, almost all of the mainstream discourse around antitrust and big tech is about increasing competition. So in other words, increasing the ability of other for-profit companies to compete against some of the big players. And you see this in the Facebook lawsuit, which you know, essentially, as you mentioned, is, is trying to spin off Instagram and WhatsApp into separate for-profit corporations. And you know, first and foremost, even if this is successful, this is only going to make a small dent in corporate power. Facebook would still be the most dominant social media network, and it's likely that Instagram and WhatsApp would dominate their respective markets same as what would happen if Google and YouTube were broken up, for instance. I don't think it's going to markedly change you know, the corporate power in either of those two sectors. You know, Second, I think increasing competition doesn't address the natural monopoly dynamics inherent to the platform economy. So platforms exhibit pretty strong network effects, which I think Matt mentioned earlier, which network effects essentially just mean that the value of the platform grows, the more people that use the platform. And this means that the big incumbent players have a huge advantage that makes it almost impossible for new entrants to effectively compete. It's almost the definition of, of natural monopoly. And lastly, I think you have to ask the question as to whether or not simply increasing competition amongst large-ish for-profit corporations is going to address any of the major underlying problems and outcomes of the platform economy. And I just don't believe that to be true. You know, in fact, some of the, in some instances, you know, or things like you know, data collection, surveillance, privacy... You, know, you could actually see that increased competition amongst for-profit corporations with the same surveillance capitalist business model may actually just make things significantly worse. And you know, so none of this is actually to say that antitrust isn't an important tool. It, it undoubtedly is an important tool. However, it's our contention in this report that antitrust strategies and reforms really have to be connected to more fundamental changes in the ownership and control structure of platforms. And I think there's a great number of antitrust experts, especially on the left, who get this and are starting to put forward some of these innovative proposals about how to make these linkages between antitrust and uh, and ownership.
1: I think that's a really good summation of why antitrust, like some of what it would produce might be necessary, but in the end, you know, we can't rely on that alone to kind of fix what's happening with these platforms, right? Because, you know, as you say, as history shows us, they are very likely to merge back up in the future and simply creating a more competitive market doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to get those, you know, public benefits that we would want to see, right? It doesn't mean that we're going to increase worker power or democratic power over these platforms. And so obviously your report lays out a lot of proposals for how we could approach that and how we could create better platforms that give us more control over them and that produce benefits that actually benefit the public, right? And so that's what I want to dig into. You know, the report lays out five key principles for a democratic approach to platforms, along with a bunch of policy recommendations for how those can be achieved. And so before I get into specific questions about those, I wanted to give you the opportunity to kind of highlight the aspects of it that you thought were most important. So what do we need to change about platforms and how do we achieve that?
2: Building up on what Thomas said around sort of how antitrust is both a very useful tool, but we argue in the paper that we need to Go beyond that, and indeed, you know, some left-hand trusts of figures and movements are already doing that to look at questions of ownership, governance, and purpose. And We sort of set out five principles, which we think these are flexible, etc. But you know, we think these principles could, I think, get to the key thing, which is like how can we sort of like rescue the democratic and enlivening potential of platforms to connect, to coordinate, to sort of play, to you know, to explore. You know, that there are obviously a yeah, huge virtues potentially in sort of this. Sort of power of the platform but how can we rescue that from sort of the dynamics and the sort of outcomes that their delivery and control via sort of for-profit you know dominant monopoly corporations are generating so we sort of set out five sort of principles which i could sort of maybe sketch uh, and then thomas can then potentially sort of tee up how these principles could be then institutionalized potentially through through intervention so the first and this builds off what thomas said earlier around sort of it's now quite well-known phrase around surveillance capitalism, and in some ways, you know, it's important to stress. Well, I actually I don't know, I don't, know I don't know where you fall on this, but I, I, I sort of fall very much on the sort of like surveillance capitalism isn't a, sort of a new break from sort of you know, historic modes of capitalist development and capitalism, but rather sort of a heighting up of you know pre-existing trends to extend you know, social control, to extend capital's ability to sort of corral and oversee labour. But certainly, sort of, you know, the first principle is privacy and anti-surveillance. And that means both sort of we should be sceptical of and think through carefully what data is collected in the first place and whether it should be in the first place and who does it. So I think we should be sceptical both of private platform actors but also the state, you know, also the state as a sort of problematic actor when it comes to surveillance, control and access to data. So I think we start with the principle of sort of privacy and anti-surveillance as sort of democratic right both individually and as collectives. The second then touches on... What I sort of mentioned earlier, which is how do we challenge this dynamic, this logic at the heart of the sort of platform economy, which is about expansion and enclosure and sort of a totalizing attempt to bring, you know, the user of the platform into a sort of world into itself. So you sort of shop on Amazon, you sort of get your products from Amazon, you get your you know TV from Amazon, you basically live within the platform in, in, increasingly. And so we argue that, you know, rather than sort of enclosure, we should try and build a digital commons. So the democratic governance of the piece sort of assets, institutions that sort of underpin the platform economy, whether that's data, whether that's IP, whether whatever that might be, we then sort of suggest, and this is important, so we haven't we haven't really touched upon it enough, but I think it's important to locate the platforms within sort of a wider sort of geopolitical and sort of world systems in some way. Argument in that you know it's no surprise that sort of the two twin poles in some ways of you know, of the platform economy is a Silicon Valley centered sort of you know, nexus that like links up with as Thomas mentioned, sort of, you know, DARPA, sort of Department of Defense-style funding, the sort of, you know, university networks, and and sort of, you know, American geopolitical power on a global uh, level. And then, of course, you know, you have got the sort of closed world of, like, Chinese platforms, Baidu, Alibaba, et cetera, et cetera. And so, it's you know, it's bound up in those questions of power so that we think, you know, we should therefore look towards multi-stakeholder forms of governance, which don't just sort of mean, you know, users of the platform work on platforms in the UK or the US, have democratic voice and sort of a say in how the platforms organise, but try and account through governance for the global nature of use of these platforms, drawing on the work of people like Eleanor Ostrom on commoning. The fourth is about reducing corporate concentration of power. So this is, you know, this is to some degree where there's a quite a lot of alignment with, you know, the Department of Justice, the European Commission, et cetera, et cetera, and where antitrust can play a really uh, useful role. But it's about thinking about how, as Thomas says, there's this drive towards monopoly because of powerful network effects, et cetera, et cetera. So how can we have a much more ambitious attempt to reduce corporate concentration and power? And the fifth sort of builds off that in some ways, which is that if we do want that alternative, you know, if we do want an alternative in which the technologies and platforms are used to sort of, you know, amplify human creativity and sort of emancipate all of us and not just sort of concentrate power in the economy, then there will have to be a vital role for public action, whether that's public funding to try and to sort of address that that funding gap that at the moment is filled by VC funding, which then generates particular outcomes, as we've discussed. Whether it's the expansion of you know, publicly funded R and D that is about public goods rather than sort of investing in R and D to sort of you know, generate outcomes that are about maximizing profit rather than maximizing sort of the public and social good. And so this is about thinking around IP, around public R and D, around public investment, around sort of trying to challenge a funding ecology which at the moment, by design, generates particular types of platform to emerge and dominate. So those are sort of some of the five underlying principles that we set out about how we can reimagine the platform economy. But Thomas, perhaps you maybe sketch some of the ideas.
0: Sure. I mean historically I think one of the common solutions to the problem of natural monopolies in capitalist countries has been what people call public utility regulation. And and public utilities are, are enterprises, or businesses, or services that provide a, a public service and are subject to specific and often relatively strict government regulations. And you know, traditionally, these things have been electricity, water, communications, you know, so on and so forth. And there's this emerging idea around classifying and regulating platforms and other big data-dependent corporations as public utilities. And and that's obviously controversial. I think the, the big tech companies hate it and are, are totally. Totally against that idea, but it is gaining, I think, traction amongst amongst various experts. But you know, the experience and theory of public utility regulation in the United States, at least, suggests that this is pretty insufficient to deal with some of the innumerable problems associated with corporate concentration of power. And as I mentioned earlier, it does little in furtherance of redistributing or democratizing wealth or or economic control or anything like that. And case in point is obviously the U.S. experience with relatively large investor owned electric utilities. I mean, you see with PG&E in California and, and you know, Conrad and other ones like that. And so that leaves alternative models of ownership for me and for Matt and, and others as, as the most viable and radical path forward. And I think it's, you know, alternative models of ownership are the only options capable of getting to the root of many of the problems that these platform corporations present. So with that sort of framework around it, And along with the the five principles that Matt mentioned, you know, first and foremost in the U.S., I think this has to include considering taking some or all of the large platform corporations into public ownership, either wholly or through a controlling or a majority share owning position. I think it's different in the U.K., and Matt will jump in 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 a second to talk about public utility regulation framework in, in the U.K., but in the US at least i think a public ownership option is viable but part of this process really must include embedding democratic principles at various levels you know for instance if you do end up taking ownership stakes in major platform companies you probably just don't want these things to be held by the treasury department or or just held in traditional structures you know you could put them into an autonomous public trust or some other similar vehicle that's organized, as Matt said, with democratic multi-stakeholder representation for workers, consumers, public officials, the general public, et cetera. You know, similarly as well, Once in public ownership, the companies themselves should be restructured to embed democratic management structures and, and new public interest principles. And particularly concerning for us and, and for, I think, everyone in this field is ensuring that anti-surveillance and data privacy values are really woven into these new publicly owned platforms if you're going to have publicly owned platforms. And this really can't be an afterthought, as it would introduce pretty unacceptable risk that these new public platforms would face incentives and pressure to collect or monetize or misuse data. And this includes sharing it with government agencies that are engaged in surveillance and social control, like ICE, for instance. Like You don't want the data from a publicly owned uh, platform being given over to ICE or the Department of Defense to be used for xenophobic or racist or imperialistic processes. Rather, I think anti-surveillance and privacy values should be included in all enabling legislation. Anything that would enable the public to take ownership needs to have these privacy and anti-surveillance frameworks involved. And this can be done in conjunction with or after the enactment of a pretty strict national data privacy framework. And that, would, I think, would be an important complement to this proposal of public ownership. So I think in addition to the public ownership of the major platform corporations, there are a number of other policy solutions that we laid out in the report that could be deployed to confront the platform monopolies and to chart a course away from surveillance capitalism. And you know, these policies could be complementary. They could be part of a, a, a larger process of public ownership or maybe a piecemeal approach where certain policies can be taken in, in certain circumstances. And I'll just run through them. Very, very quickly, I think, and maybe we can get into some more details later, but uh, one of the proposals is, is a central bank digital currency and a postal banking system. And this is essentially to try and head off the inevitability that the ascendant fintech industry basically takes control of uh, the currency system itself. And, and basically, we hand over our entire currency system to platform capitalists, which is where we're going. If you, if you look at Libra or you know, what used to be called Libra and is now called DM. that's where this is going. And so the alternative would be a central bank digital currency linked to a postal banking system. And if done right, I think this could modernize the payments infrastructure and really head off that corporate control that would lead us in very detrimental directions. The second is a, a new and enhanced set of rights for workers and unions in the platform economy. And there's nothing innate in the concept of platforms that means work organized through them should be precarious or badly paid or lacking in control. That's just the reality for platform workers based on the own weaknesses of our labor law in both U.S. and the U.K. So to address this, we advocate for you know, establishing a new set of labor rights to be introduced to ensure that work organized through these platforms is secure and decent. And you know this could be done for publicly owned platforms, but also could be done even if you don't go the ownership route. You should probably pass some legislation around worker and union rights. The third is a new deliberative and multi-stakeholder body or agency to set and enforce standards around data collection and speech. And you know, this, this really gets to this question about what types of data should be collected, how is it collected, what purpose data should be used. And as Matt mentioned earlier, this really should not be the prerogative of multinational corporations or really distant state authorities. You know The same applies to, I think, decisions around what should be considered acceptable speech and content on social media platforms. We've seen recently... These corporations, Facebook and Twitter and so on and so forth, had long said that you know they were not the right ones to police the internet and to police speech. And as a result, we saw what happened with the sort of proliferation of hate speech and xenophobia and misinformation on the internet. And now they've recently sort of tacked course and are starting to deprioritize certain content, to ban certain people, to flag certain speech. And you know, people can have different interpretations as to, are they doing enough? Are they not doing enough? But the real fundamental question for me and for us, I think, is should corporations be making those decisions in the first place? And if it's not corporations making those decisions, who should be making those decisions? And so we think that a new autonomous and deliberative multi-stakeholder body or agency should be setting the principles and standards about what data can be collected and determining its, its use. Uh, and the same could also be said for, for speech as well. And the goal would just be to ensure that all stakeholders, you know, workers, residents, community organizations, businesses, so on, can really collectively shape the rules and regulations around data and speech. And then the fourth is that when data is collected, when you do create it into existence, we believe that it should be held in a new network of public data trusts that really enable residents and communities to access that data and have control over that data so it improves their lives and not so that it's misused for the purposes of, of control and surveillance, capitalism and the like. The fifth is uh, we propose a series of new public agencies, a public platform accelerator, national labs for community data, and public digital cooperatives based on what you mentioned earlier, Dan Hines' proposal, which we think really will play a role in connecting sort of public support, public investment to the creation of new democratic alternatives. So the creation of platform cooperatives, the creation of nonprofit alternatives. To not only the platform corporations that exist, but also the new platforms that will be needed in the future that we perhaps don't even know what they are. Maybe those should be developed in cooperative or nonprofit forms with support from the public. I'll stop there and I'll maybe let Matt jump in because I've been talking too much.
2: That's a pretty fair summary. As you can tell, there's quite a lot of uh, things in there. But I mean I think, you know, I think it's partly because it's a sort of multi-headed hydra, so to speak. So, you know, if you want to challenge the monopoly power, you can't just say, well, like okay, well, what about the sort of how is data sort of surveilled, controlled, access used, you've got to think, okay, well, the you're challenging power imbalances, you also then have to sort of provide a basic level of you know labor rights for everyone who enters into sort of work or the labor market, you know, whether it's work organized through digital platforms or otherwise, through to, you know, addressing that financial ecology that we've discussed around sort of VC and sort of providing an alternative and recognizing that, you know, left the market, this will this will not happen. So you actually need to sort of a much more sort of purposeful, conscious attempt to shape our sort of you know, data worlds or technical infrastructures as sort of architectures of you know, digital connection, if we are going to to build a sort of very different digital world, which I think we can, but I think we won't unless we sort of recognize we need a more systemic set of interventions.
1: You've both given us like so much to kind of think about and process. It just shows that there are so many different routes that we can take in order to You know, address some of these issues with the problems, but also think about creating alternatives to what is there right now. And I think one of the important pieces of the report is that it looks at the US context, but then it also looks at the UK context. And I think in looking at the UK, it also kind of gives us a bit of a broader picture for what a lot of other countries that are not the US can do in responding to these platforms, right? And so that's why I wanted to ask you, Matt. Like, obviously, a lot of this discussion centers, at least, you know, the the discussion that I think I hear the most centers on what could happen in the US where these companies are centered in the US. But looking from a UK perspective or a non-US perspective, how does that look like? How does the power of these companies get reined in when they are not, you know, headquartered in your jurisdiction and you can't say nationalize them from the UK or something like that?
2: Yeah, I think it's a really important question and challenge. So I think there's there's three things that I've sort of touched upon. So the first, I mean, I think is, by their nature, this sort of global in operation, but I think it, that has provoked and is accelerating a sort of global response. So you may well have seen them sort of make Amazon pay campaigns, you know, from India to Brazil to US Congress. Women, I think, were sort of supporting it through to sort of UK legislation, etc, etc. You know, it was, it was a sort of, Global coordinated struggle through aggressive international. So I think, you know, there is a sort of mass of organisations, people, movements, trade unions out there that can be cohered around sort of globally contesting the abuses of platforms in sort of particular geographies, while also sort of, you know, pushing for sort of reform within, within the US. So the second within the UK, and I think the UK is obviously like, you know, relatively lucky, it is in a sort of slightly different position relative to... South Africa's capacity to regulate and challenge the power of big tech, but I think also the UK is a particularly interesting one to, to watch in some ways. In that, one sort of the big sort of points of political contestation about the UK's future is whether, in leaving the EU, we sort of then sort of drift from the EU's regulatory ambit into basically sort of the this gravitational force field of the US, which obviously for of the UK would you know broadly be a disaster in terms of you know labour market deregulation standards on food on finance etc cetera, etc cetera. and tech is a really like, interesting case study where will we sort of continue to align with eu standards on data etc or you know if there's a uk us trade deal at some point will you know sort of certain sort of digital sort of standards and processes become aligned so definitely one to watch where we sort of set out so i guess two differences to what thomas or two additions to what thomas has said where i think it's interesting to know what others can do so the first and this is not just happening in the uk but the first is While, as you say, the UK can't nationalise Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, I think where it can be clearly shown to be, and it might not be the entire, it might not be all of Alphabet, for example, but it might be Google within Alphabet. So where particular branches of major platforms are clearly monopolies, clearly dominant, sustained monopolies, whether it's Google and Search, whether it's Uber and Lyft sharing, et cetera, et cetera. While we can't necessarily nationalise them, we should apply a sort of public utility sort of model, and essentially these are functions that we all depend upon now, and regulate them in terms of, you know, the required level of private sector investment, the private, you know, cap their level of profitability, you know, basically sort of reset, you know, say, right, you're basically a utility now, these are sort of the social license you need to operate, and to have a very sort of stringent, ambitious agenda there to go alongside this, this wider effort for a multi-stakeholder sort of transition of major platforms in their sort of predominantly US-based jurisdiction. So I think there's that, and the other thing which I think is quite interesting, and I think whether it's antitrust or whether it's this agenda, and there's obviously lots of complementarities. This is a, a sort of a very significant challenge to some of the most powerful organisations and people in the world. So you know, it's, it's, it's neither of sort of you know. So it might be that like you know we need to sort of have secondary strategies for advance alongside trying to you know take advantage of the antitrust hearing in the House, etc. or this new court to try and get the maximally ambitious outcome there. And there, I think. Towns, cities, municipalities, you know, states in America, well obviously some, some states are the equivalent of fairly large countries. So particularly sort of cities and towns, there's a real chance to develop what we call digital community wealth building. And you can see this already in places like Barcelona and Amsterdam, where some really ambitious municipal socialist mayors have been sort of trying to rethink the governance of data, the collection of data, the commoning of digital technologies. What we sort of essentially say is like, okay, well, even if the UK can't do everything given the sort of jurisdictional challenges that you point out, it can nonetheless, in its cities, for example, require any public contract where they may just have a digital platform to require them to common all the data that they generate through that, you know, public contract. You know, clearly, with the caveat that if that should be a public contract, not something that we outsource, then we think it should be brought in house and not not outsource. But you know, in the areas where they you would engage with private sector provider, you can have terms around, you know transitioning data so you know you could imagine in this digital community wealth building strategy for example you're saying okay well condition of license for a lyft or an uber is a you know national new standards so that you treat all uber drivers as employees with sort of rights from day one collective bargaining on the app etc 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 but two okay if you if you want to drive in birmingham or manchester or glasgow or london etc 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 the data generated does not become siloed or controlled by Uber or Lyft or whoever it might be. It becomes pooled as a sort of shared resource. So that information asymmetry that you know, works in capital's favor over labor but also works for the company against regulators is rebalanced. And then towns and cities can plan more effectively. They can say, actually, hold there's too many Ubers on the road. We're going to sort of restrict it. Or they can say, right, well, there's you know, too much emissions coming from these sets of cars or this set of traffic or whatever it might be. And so you can have local strategies to reimagine how platforms operate within that geographic footprint as a way to rebalance power and to open up the more sort of creative potential platforms. So that's some of the things that we sort of explore that's slightly different to, but in addition to what has already been explored.
1: When I think about the international approach, a lot of these platforms are headquartered in the US. And one of the things that you discussed, Thomas, was the potential need or if it's possible to take these platforms into public ownership. But then I'm also thinking that if these platforms are still global in nature and we are all operating on them, I wonder if people in Canada, in the UK, in India, in parts of Africa, wherever, will really want to be using a platform that is owned and controlled by the United States, right? Knowing how the United States has... You know, surveilled people around the world through the NSA and things like that, and, you know, for many other reasons. And Matt, I think you touched on this a little bit, but do you think that in thinking about how these platforms are global in nature, that also forces us in some way to reflect on whether we need new forms of governance that are not limited to national boundaries, but are more international in their scope? And actually, give power to the people who use these platforms around the world, instead of you know in one or another state.
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And Thomas jumping in this moment, uh, by all means. but yeah, absolutely. So th- what we set out is exactly that. So we set out a multi-stakeholder global governance structure in which you know, and it might be the sort of subsidiaries operating in different countries have like different levels, but the overarching architecture should be exactly that governance where users, whether in Brazil or wherever it might be, have Voice access rights—you know—sort of shape the operation of the platform. Because, as you said, these are platforms that are international; they sort of move across all boundaries, and yet they sort of obviously yeah, clear outposts of American power uh, as well. So, so exactly that's so what we're saying: it's not enough just to sort of transition into public ownership. It might be sort of U.S. public ownership, or you could explore, you know, multinational public ownership measures, or sort of the commoning of the underlying sort of property relations of of these large platforms. But linked to that, absolutely has to be. And, you know the platform should allow for this because it is a way of coordinating and sort of connecting voice, should allow for multi-stakeholder forms of governance. And, you know, to be clear, we haven't got sort of full worked out, you know, sort of cookbook of the future in this report. But I think, you know, that's part of the excitement and the potential of the platform still is that it should exactly enable the type of international forms of governance over the sort of architecture and sort of the asset underlying asset I think it opens up really exciting, sort of democratic and sort of a solidaristic potential in it.
0: Yeah, I would echo everything that Matt just said and and just briefly add that, you know, it's it's a critical point because, you know, Facebook has more users outside of the United States than, than inside the United States. You know, Uber operates in, you know, dozens of countries and, and hundreds and hundreds of cities around the world. These are not solely uh, American companies in that. You know, they really have to take into the dynamics of, of how they interact with the rest of the world and how people around the rest of the world use these platforms and are abused by these platforms. And to me, I think the last thing I'd just say on it is that for me, in general, one of the big benefits of public ownership is its flexibility in terms of design, in terms of institutional design, unlike private corporations, which are very much constrained by, you know, sort of market fundamentalism or, or market dynamics. Profit making, quarterly returns, you know, so on and so forth. Public ownership is not necessarily constrained by those same dynamics and can really be designed however the people, you know, the owners want to design it. And I totally understand and and accept that, at least traditionally, this has taken the sort of scale or level of the state in many places, the traditional state owned enterprise organized at sort of a national scale, very sort of top down, very managerial very sort of bureaucratic, kind of arm's length from any sort of democratic accountability or transparency. But that's not the model of public ownership that Matt or I, or I think anyone who's interested in public ownership nowadays from an activist point of view wants to have. You know, we want to design a new type of public ownership that is far more democratic, far more participatory, far more accountable and transparent. And to me, that includes going beyond the nation state level and thinking about international levels of governance and management and ownership.
1: Yeah. And I think another key point there, because, you know, we've talked a lot about taking existing platforms into public ownership and kind of tweaking them that way. But in the report, you also talk about, you know, creating ways to support the creation of new public platforms that might operate in a completely different way, right? And, you know, you talk about a public platform accelerator and public digital cooperatives. So can you give us some insight into how we would encourage the creation of new platforms and what kind of benefits you would hope that we would see from that.
0: Yeah, I think that it's, so we we just talked about, you know, the need to go beyond the nation state and potentially to the international level. I think we also need to go beyond the nation state back to sort of the local and the regional level on many of these things. So it's a twofold process of of moving in, in different directions. And I think I mentioned earlier, a couple of the proposals around the public platforms accelerator, Around uh, public digital cooperatives and so on and so forth. Another proposal that we have in the report is around funding. And we mentioned earlier, and we talked earlier about how sort of the logics of, of monopolization and corporate concentration are in big tech and platforms are really driven by the type of funding that they receive this VC funding. How do you incentivize the creation of alternative models of ownership and development that don't rely on that VC funding? And so, one of the obvious examples to us is public funding and financing through a national investment bank and or a series of of public banks, basically using the powers of the federal government, the national government, to fund alternatives at the state and the local level. We see this in a lot of different areas. In the United States, we have a quite vibrant public banking movement, especially in California and elsewhere. There's a lot of activist energy around this question of public banking. And the opportunities that public banking allows to really seed the various different components of a more democratic political economic system, everything from sort of social housing to worker cooperatives, to tech companies and to platform cooperatives. I think getting control of capital is absolutely critical if we want to ever scale up or develop any of these alternatives to where they can even rival or or compete against the large platform corporations. Uh, yeah I think
2: that's right. The only two things I'd add is one sort of like what what might it be and I think in some ways we can we can slightly learn from sort of like a replication model, so we kind of you know we know that there is and i think it has to be managed properly, but uh, you know we know there's probably like some social utility for the more smooth connection of users and drivers et cetera et cetera, in sort of mobility, but we also know that you know currently as designed too often that means rising emissions, rising traffic in cities and, you know, people working for less than a living wage, you know, in often really precarious conditions. So can you sort of like say, well, okay, maybe there is some use in a more sort of smooth sort of mobility process in, in urban areas or wherever it might be, but actually you to sort of develop a public platform that sort of does that, but actually make sure that everyone on it has living wage, has, you know, conditions negotiated through some sort of collective bargaining agreements if you sort of operate on the platform, et cetera, et cetera. We can replicate, and then I think we can begin to experiment and I think by sort of you know investing to create platforms to sort of serve new needs or to meet existing needs more effectively, rather than to maximise profit. And I think there, all I'd the stress, we don't know what those are, so we'd have to sort of experiment to try and do those. And I think there, I think we should be you know unafraid, you know, learn from private sector VC. We don't want everything to fail, clearly. But I think one of the things that we'd have to embrace if we want a more sort of entrepreneurial state, you know, the Mazzucato line. But if we do want a more entrepreneurial state. We have to sort of recognise, accept, and indeed of celebrate, you know, in some ways, ironically trying to develop new platforms to meet new needs that don't work. And that, you know, failure isn't necessarily failure as such, as long as it's saying, okay, well, actually, there's no need to develop a public platform that sort of locates the very best sort of trees in a city, although that might be quite nice. But like, you know, there is one that says, this metaphor is just terrible, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, there are platforms that you can develop that we don't know. You know, it's the rum thing. there are known, unknown, blah, 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 all that. There are known unknowns. We need to develop those, and but like we won't always get it right, but that's okay. And I think you know, a thriving you know, entrepreneurial public sort of state investments role embraces that sort of you know the fact they won't always get it right. But then sometimes they'll they'll sort of you know, create a platform that is democratically governed that serves social needs over sort of profit maximization that makes a real breakthrough in terms of equity and efficiency.
0: And I think generally, just to add, not only in in the case of, of tech, we must break out of this logic of unimaginativeness when it comes to design of our society and our economies and our systems. I mean, we're trapped in this logic of market fundamentalism. And you see it in the United States now with what's happening in state and local governments with regards to funding and the the COVID-19 crisis. And you're basically seeing a, a wave of what's going to be hardcore austerity coming because state and local governments can't technically you know, spend money. They, like the federal government does, they have to technically balance their budgets. And as such, they're cutting funding for transit systems. They're cutting funding for public services. And it doesn't have to be that way. It's absolutely illogical. The federal government does have sovereign monetary authority. It has the power to solve these problems for state and localities with the click of their fingers or you know, the click of a keystroke on the computer. It makes no sense that we are cutting all of our public services and our transit in the middle of a pandemic and our healthcare systems in the middle of the pandemic. That's a design question. That is a a lack of imagination amongst our policymakers, amongst our leaders. When we're talking about big tech as well, if we really wanted to develop alternative models of ownership and an ecosystem of platforms that were not platform corporations, we could do so. We could use the power of the federal government to directly spend money. And to create money and run it through public banks or run it through a national investment bank in however way we want to, we have all the tools, we have all the mechanisms. We just don't use them because we're trapped. We're logically trapped.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. And I think the point you make about the imagination is so important, right? Because when I think about these things, when I was reading your report, one of the things that I find most exciting is to think about how we can use existing public competencies to shift them into thinking about technology and to give them the permission to pursue these things, like letting libraries think about putting together a different kind of search engine or seeing what the post office would do if it was allowed to really push forward and reimagine how technology might work in the public interest. And so just to end, I wanted to ask you, you know, you've written this really big report. We've gotten to some aspects of it. But what is the most exciting aspect of the report to you, or the future that it lays out? So, for me, the most exciting thing isn't necessarily the sort of you
2: know the policy options we set out. Although we hope that that's obviously you know a real contribution to to the debate and useful for sort of activists and campaigners and sort of policymakers. I think it's more sort of this stress on how technology and you know technical systems are are deeply political. That how they operate and whose interest is not fixed, it's not certain, and that actually the type of, sort of institutional reforms, the recommendations we set out are a way to sort of reclaim the platform from the existing logics and actually sort of rescue them. And, you know, sort of Wendy Lewis of arguing, you know, abolish Silicon Valley's sort of, you know, capitalist development of the platform. You know, how can we rescue them and the emancipatory potential of digital technologies, the emancipatory potential of platforms to connect, to communicate, really stressing that argument, I think is the most exciting thing to say. Look, Digital monopolies currently dominate the commanding heights of our economies, but this isn't necessarily inevitable. It reflects political, social, and economic choices we've made. And in that lies the hope of the potential to liberate the platform and to make it a sort of space and a sort of for a forum for more democratic and social ends, rather than simply sort of the concentration of extraordinary, sort of in some ways, historically unprecedented levels of wealth and power amongst a sort of tiny knot of corporate actors and their major shareholders.
0: Yeah, for for me, Matt hit on the critical point for me, and that's this question of the commanding heights of the economy. And people on the left for generations have struggled with this question of how would you potentially move to a more democratic or equitable, sustainable political economic system beyond capitalism if you can't gain control over the commanding heights of the economy, the biggest corporations in your economy. They just literally have to be confronted and they have to be taken over. And and none of these proposals that we've laid out in this report are a silver bullet and they all need, you know, further exploration and definition. However, you know, in the 1970s, the British economist and, and politician Stuart Holland said that taking over the commanding heights of the economy wouldn't by itself fulfill the socialist goal of abolishing private sector capitalism completely. However, it could potentially cause a chain reaction that would radically and permanently tip the balance of economic, political, and social power. And that's really what I want to do and what I'm hoping to do with these proposals and this report.
1: I completely agree with both of you. Thank you both so much for coming on. And I recommend everyone to go check out the report because it does lay out so many important potential paths to confront these platforms, but also to think bigger about how these platforms could serve the public good and the kind of democratic goals that we want to see. So thank you both for coming on the show.
0: Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Matthew Lawrence is the founder and director of Commonwealth and the co-author of Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown. You can pre-order it now at Verso Books and find the links to do that in the show notes. Thomas Hanna is the research director at The Next System Project and the author of Our Commonwealth, The Return of Public Ownership in the United States. And again, you can find the links for that in the show notes. You can follow Matthew on Twitter at, at DantonsHead, and you can follow Thomas at, at Thomas M. Hanna. You can also follow me at @ParisMarks, Paris Marks, and you can follow the show at, at Tech Won't Save Us. Tech Won't Save Us is part of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can find more information about that at HarbingerMediaNetwork.com. Finally, if you want to support the show, please go to Patreon.com slash not Save Us and become a supporter. Thanks for listening.